As we continue through the Gospel of Matthew in our sermon series called All Hail the King, because Matthew does present uh, Jesus Christ as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, we find ourselves now in Matthew chapter 17. In beginning in verse 1 through 13, and though the focus of our sermon this morning will be on uh, verses 1 through 8, but for context, we do want to read through 13. And we read these words. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, we'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, why, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. I pray that as it is proclaimed, that it is done through the power of your spirit and that you would reveal to us the person and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And in seeing that, that we would bow ourselves down once again in faith and in repentance and trusting him alone, who is our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, These chapters, Matthew 16 and 17, that we've been on, are the the very hinge of Matthew's gospel. Uh, Everything's beginning to turn. We we have been observing Jesus making in these chapters the, the clearest statements about his nature and his purpose in coming to this earth as the Son of God. And we have observed how he declared with authority... Um, how he will build his church here in the earth upon the right confession of his people who acknowledge him as the Christ, the Lord. And we've seen how he has begun to unpack the details of his coming suffering and death on the cross and his very resurrection. And now we come to this arresting event of 
Jesus' transfiguration. But as wonderfully miraculous as this incident is, it seems to be one of those moments in the life and ministry of Jesus that somehow gets overlooked. I mean, we talk with joy about the nativity as we're approaching even soon the season of Advent. And we remember how Christ came down from heaven, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. And how he has one person with two distinct natures, both God and man united in one. We sorrow over the cross and we feel the weight of our guilt as we see our face in the crowds crying out to crucify him. And we rejoice in the resurrection, knowing that through his death and resurrection, sin and Satan and death have been defeated for all eternity. And so that united to Christ in faith, we are justified, we are made right with God and given a new life. But the transfiguration kind of gets lost in all of that mystery and wonder of Jesus' life and death and resurrection in his ministry. And nevertheless, this historical event is vital to our faith. It's vital to Christianity. And here's why. The transfiguration gives us a real-time event that actually happened in history, which confirms what he has been saying up to this point. What has he been saying? I am the Son of God. I am the Christ. I am God, Emmanuel, God with us. And so for a very moment on this high mountain, the veil of the natural world is pulled back and we are given a glimpse into the glory of Christ's divine nature. And it didn't happen in heaven. It happened on earth, on a mountaintop. This is Jesus not just saying but showing that He is indeed God with us. And so we need Jesus' transfiguration as much as we need His incarnation and His crucifixion and His resurrection and His second advent, which we eagerly await. We need it because it confirms for us that God, our God, is with us now. That Christ is with us in this very moment. And that's the first thing we see in in this narrative is that Jesus brings his people into the presence of God's glory. Jesus brings his people into the presence of God's glory. Now, what do we mean when we talk about the glory of God? Because as believers, we, we, we say, well, may God be glorified. Or we talk about the glory of God. We, we read of it in both the Old and the New Testaments. We affirm that all things exist for the glory of God alone. Or soli deo gloria, one of the tenets of the, the Reformation. But what actually is the glory of God? Well, God's glory is more than just simple words can adequately describe. Essentially, though, what God's glory is, is all that God is. It's all His attributes, His very nature, His infinite excellency that exceeds all other things. It's what makes Him God Most High. 
above all others. But his glory is also his work. It's what he does. And so the Bible speaks of God's works being glorious. For example, Psalm 111.3, full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. And so from creation to the cross, in all of God's works, we see his glory. Particularly, the glory of God is tied to his delight or his joy or his happiness within his creation, within us. And his creation experiences the highest of joy when they are in his presence. And so we see this connection then between God's glory and his abiding presence and the idea of our joy. We could say God's glory is his presence made manifest. And we see the glory of God being made manifest to his people in a very special way in this text here. So as Matthew relates to us in the the first two verses, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John, his brother, and he leads them up into a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And so here we see Jesus. He takes three of his disciples, Peter, James and John, up to this high, uh, unnamed mountain. And he takes these three because of the role they will play uh, soon in the new covenant community of God's people, which is the church. But there's another reason that he takes these three, or takes three of them. And that is this. Within the scriptures, two or three witnesses are legally required to bear witness to an event if it is to be certified as true. You can't just have one. You have to have at least two, preferably three, witnesses. And that is a principle laid out, prescribed by God himself in the Old Testament, later reaffirmed by Jesus within the Gospels. We even see it coming up in the writings of Paul, that if uh, charges are to be laid against an elder, there needs to be at least two to three witnesses. So the point is that one witness out to an event, it isn't enough to say, hey, that's true. I mean, they might be able to make it up. But two or three, well, now you're starting to have more evidence to certify it as credible. And so by bringing three of his disciples, Jesus is fulfilling the lawful requirement to validate that which is about to happen to be true and historic. Peter, James, and John are about to bear witness to the revealed majesty and glory of Christ's divine nature. Not only does the transfiguration, though, take place before the right number of witnesses to certify it true as true, it takes place upon a high mountain. And that's important. Mountains are significant in the Bible, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. And think about it, when Jesus finally defeats Satan during his temptation, where does it take place? On a high mountain. When we are given a detailed sermon of his kingdom, he sits down upon a mountain. 
When the cross upon which Christ will be crucified is raised to the sky, it will be upon a mountain called Golgotha. And when the risen Christ sends forth his church with authority to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son, you know where he does it? On top of a mountain. And the scriptures even tell us that at the second advent, when Christ comes again, he touches down upon Mount Zion. Mountains are important. And why are they important? Because they're hard to miss. I mean, when you see a mountain, you know it's a mountain, right? I've been down uh, in the Appalachians. I've seen, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina. Probably the biggest mountains I've seen were the Andes Mountains. When you see mountains, they feel big. They feel important. They're uh, impossible to not notice. And so the fact that the transfiguration happens on this mountain is to say, look, this is a pinnacle. This is something important. Witness this. Witness the glory of God in Christ. So there on the mountain, before all these, these three witnesses on that mountain, Jesus is transfigured. And he's, he's not physically changed, but he, he's transformed in such a way so that the common and the ordinary give way to the extraordinary and the supernatural. He's still recognizable as Jesus. They don't think he's something different. They know he's Jesus as they're bearing witness to this. But the humble, unassuming carpenter from Nazareth that they have been following around for the past couple of years is now radiating the glorious God right before them. And now, as we know, when we look into the scriptures, look into the gospel, it is the details of these narratives that are very important when it comes to understanding what God is revealing to us. And an important detail here is that the language shows us that Jesus isn't merely reflecting God's glory. It's actually emanating or being cast out from himself. Jesus' face shone like the sun. It didn't reflect glory like the moon. And his clothes were white like light. The glory of God's presence in the scriptures is often portrayed as this bright and burning light so that one cannot look directly at it without being blinded. Now, there are many things that reflect the glory of God. I mean, the sun, the moon, the stars, they are all reflections of God's glory. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims His handiwork. And we, as people, being created in the image of God, are reflections of His glory. Also, the church reflects the glory of God as believers are transformed by the power of the gospel, which is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. But here on this high mountain... Jesus isn't just reflecting God's glory. He is God's glory. He is God's glory because He is God. 
And when God's glory is reflected by other things, be it the works of His creation or the church, they're reflecting a glory that's not their own. Belongs to God. But the glory that Peter, James, and John are witnessing here is coming directly from Jesus. And to confirm this to them, notice this, two more witnesses join them on the mountaintop. So now you have five. Adding to the miraculous moment, Moses and Elijah appear next to Christ. And we see they are talking with him. Now we aren't told what they're discussing. We don't know what they're talking about, what the conversation was. But the point that they are talking together is to show a sense of familiarity. And that familiarity explains why they are there. You see, Moses and Elijah represent two things. They represent the law and they represent the prophets. Moses was given the law by God on another mountain. Mount Sinai, in a scene that is incredibly reminiscent of this one. In in Exodus 24, we read that Moses went up to Mount Sinai, and he was there for how many days? Six days. And here, Matthew is careful to point out that Jesus and his disciples waited six days before ascending to the peak of this mountain. In Exodus, the glory of the Lord appeared on the mountain as a bright fire and a cloud. And here at the transfiguration of Jesus, we see him appearing as a burning sun and a bright cloud descending around them. At Sinai, Moses and the people of Israel were given the law of God as the stipulations of his covenant relationship that he made with them. But now at the transfiguration, Jesus gives himself to his people as the promise of God's blessing upon the people. And so you see, both the law and the prophets ultimately point to one thing. They point to Jesus Christ, the Christ who was the Son of God, the Christ who was Emmanuel, God with us, the Christ who would nevertheless suffer as a sacrifice for His people so that He might write God's covenant law on their hearts. And what was the goal of that covenant of grace? Revealed in this glorious Son, it's to make it possible so that people like you and I can enjoy the glory of God's presence dwelling within us and without and upon us as we worship Him together. You see, Jesus brings His people into the glory of God's presence. But there is a problem that is here in this text as well. You see, people are often like Peter in this narrative. We are all often like Peter. We are are content, or we are willing to content ourselves with lesser glories when the greater glory is accessible to us. It's right in front of us. We play with the lesser enjoyments like they are an end unto themselves and we miss the greater joy. And so when the Father's voice calls out, we fear His voice rather than rejoice. Peter erects a tent, a tent theology really. Look at verse 4 again. 
He, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, when Peter says, Lord, it is good for us to be here, he doesn't mean, boy, are we privileged to be here. Are we blessed to be here. And while it's true that being in God's presence and the glory of his presence through Christ is a very good place to be, Peter's following words give us a different sense of what he means when he says it's good for us to be here. What what he is actually saying is this. He's saying it's good for us to be here because we can do what needs to be done. We can build some tents. You see, he he wants to not simply be the recipient of the blessing of the presence of God's glory, but he wants to capture that glory and hold it for himself in that moment. Is he building a shelter or a tent has the idea of holding or capturing this moment of transfiguration and thus prolonging this moment on the mountain. But it cannot be prolonged. Because this little moment is just a taste, just a taste of the glory of God that is Jesus Christ. In fact, if he stayed transfigured on the mountain with them, he would miss out on all the other glory that is to follow. There would be no glory of the cross. There would be no glory of the resurrection. There would be no glory of his return. And Peter wanted to hold on just to this one part of Jesus' glory. But that would mean missing out on the rest. There's a second problem with Peter's words. He was actually diminishing the glory of Christ by equating him with Moses and Elijah. He failed to see that Moses and Elijah were there simply to testify that this indeed was the Christ that was promised and signified and pointed to through the law and the prophets. But Peter was just seeing three prophets. He was willing to keep the lesser glory and in doing that he would have missed on the greater glory to follow. You see, we are so easily tempted to take pleasure in many things other than the full glory of Jesus Christ. And for some of us, that might actually be the law. That might be Moses. We build a tent for Moses in our lives, just like Peter wanted to build. And we want to camp out in its ethics and its morals because they're beautiful, they're good, they reflect the righteousness of God, but we fail to see that they're pointing to something better. And the problem is, we're not able to build a tent that's good enough or big enough to actually hold them. We break God's law in thought, word, and deed every day. And so we need that better glory to which it points. Now for others, our our tent theology might be a particular sin that we want to hold on to in our lives. So we rationalize it, we justify it, or we just ignore it. And we play around with the supposed enjoyment of that sin for a moment to miss the greater joy that comes when we fully turn to the mercy of Jesus. There is that famous saying by Lewis, We certainly recognize his theology was not perfect, but he was right when he says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but 
too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's what it means to content ourselves with the lesser glory and to miss out on the greater glory of Christ. But our tents of lesser glories never give us what we really need. And what we need is to be able to dwell in the presence of God, our Maker, and our Lord, both now and forever. But when we look to these lesser glories, content ourselves with them, what happens In the presence of God. What happens when the Father's voice cries out? Well, instead of rejoicing, we fear. You see, Peter was never able to finish his thoughts. As he's saying, hey, let's build these tents if you want. We can build one for you and Elijah and Moses. Suddenly, there is this bright cloud that falls upon them and overshadows them. And the voice of the Almighty rings out, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And these very words, of course, are the words of the Father that He spoke at Jesus' baptism, calling out again the truth that Jesus was indeed the Son who would complete the Father's will, beloved and well-pleasing. And this pleasure that the Father takes in the Son is very much key to understanding what He is saying. For it means that the Father is satisfied in the Son, in what He does and who He is. He is satisfied in His redemptive work. And what that means then is that the demands of the law that are against us, that we have broken, in Jesus, they are satisfied. The wrath or justice or judgment of God that should befall us in Jesus is satisfied. And so, we ought to listen to Him as the Father commands. We ought to listen with joy because if the Father is satisfied in Christ, that means in Jesus, the Father is satisfied in us. If the Father loves the Son, it means He loves us. If the Father is pleased with the Son, He is pleased with us. If we are joined to Christ Jesus, thus we ought to listen to the Father's voice with joy, not fear. Now, it is true that the Bible talks about fearing God and this being a good thing. That kind of fear is a holy all, a reverence of His glory, of His power, of His holiness and goodness. But the fear that Peter, James, and John expresses here is different. You see, they are fearing being destroyed by God, even though the very one who makes satisfaction for them is there by their side with them. Jesus, their advocate, is the very one who brought them to this place, to this mountain, into the glory of God's presence, but they're still afraid of that presence. And when we content ourselves with the lesser glories of this world, we will fear the Father's voice, not in a holy reverential way, but in a terrifying way, because those glories never wash away our guilt, our sin. 
But thanks be to God that when we do practice our own tent theology, God in His grace still steps in to rescue us from our foolishness. You see, Jesus comes and He takes us back to where we need to be, to where we see Him alone. And in verse 7, we read these words that Jesus came, Peter, James, and John. He came and He touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And there they were, trembling in their failure or their fear, and Jesus comes to them. Notice they don't get up and run over to Jesus. They're too afraid. They're terrified. They're thought they're about to be destroyed. So instead, Jesus comes to them. That's what he does. When we are afraid because we have failed, we have broken God's law, Jesus comes to us. When we built our own little tents and tried to fill them up with the lesser things other than the crucified, risen glory of Christ, Jesus comes to us. I love the details Matthew gives us. Notice Jesus doesn't just come to them. What does he do? He touches them. And the language that he uses in the original has this idea of a firm and caring touch. He places his hands upon them to ensure them that he is there. There is no reason to fear. He is there. The advocate Christ will be holding on to them so they could stand in the presence of the glory of God without fear. And he says to them, rise, have no fear. He speaks to them with that familiar voice that they have become so accustomed to hearing. I find this interesting. Peter is going to build the tents. Father interrupts him, says, listen to my beloved son, listen to him. And what are the first words Jesus says after the Father says, listen? He says, rise and have no fear. There's no condemnation, no mention of their failure to see what was happening on the mountain. There are only words of assurance, of pardon and peace. And so they rise. They lift their eyes. And what do they see? Do they see Moses? Do they see the law standing over them, condemning them? No. Do they see the prophets telling them that, hey, there's going to be a Redeemer that will come one day? No. Instead, they see that Redeemer. They see that King. They saw only Jesus. And when we place our eyes on the lesser things, the lesser glories, it is Jesus who takes us back to where we see Him alone. Seeing Him as our Lord, who has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins. Not with silver and gold, not with these lesser things that fade away, but with His own precious blood. And has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us His own possession. 
And so lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes and look. Look to him who has come to you. Put down the hammer and stop building shelters and tents to hold on to the lesser things. But listen to the voice that calls out to you, fear not. And look to Jesus and see him alone. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you reveal your glory to us in Christ, a Christ whom is with us in this moment as we worship him, as we consider your word, as we dwell in his presence. I pray, Father, that you would help us as we go forth from this place, not to be so easily distracted by the cares and the anxieties, and the pressures and stresses of this world, and not to be tempted to pick up the lesser glories and enjoy them but for a moment, but to look to the greater glory, to look to Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.